This episode is brought to you with support from PerfectDailyGrind.com. Perfect Daily Grind, your source for coffee education, articles, videos, and more, from the farm to the cup. Support comes from SF Bay Coffee, who pays farmers sustainable prices and helps build homes, schools, and medical facilities for their communities. Learn more at their website and get 10% off with the code COFFEEPODCAST at sfbaycoffee.com. So far, we've covered a lot of history for the series. I believe understanding the history of the problem is key to creating solutions that address the whole problem and not just the symptoms of the problem. We left off with Professor McCook talking us through the history of coffee leaf rust and how it plays a role in the story of the coffee price crisis. In this episode, we continue on that path and reach the end of the interview with some practical action items. Once the rust was entrenched in Ceylon, uh, if you can imagine the Indian Ocean Basin, Ceylon is a little teardrop uh, below the Indian Peninsula. It is a hub, a communications hub for the whole Indian Ocean Basin. It was on shipping lines and everything. So the disease very quickly spread outward from Ceylon up into the coffee zones of India and perhaps most severely over to the Dutch East Indies, home of Java and Sumatra, some of the world's largest producer. And their Mm. coffee farms were uh, devastated. So the old world coffee production, Africa and Asia, started to plummet just as Latin America's coffee production was growing. From the 1880s through the 1960s, it swept across Africa. And then in 1970, it was detected in Brazil And between about 1970 and the early 1980s, it made its way through Latin America. To a large extent, there had been a a process of global learning. Scientists had been trading ideas, technologies, varieties. And even though it caused a lot of anxiety as it swept through Latin America in the 1970s and 1980s, the coffee communities at the time, the National Coffee Institutes, the scientific research institutions, were able to kind of figure out ways of coexisting with the disease. And Mm. uh, I go into this in great detail in the book. But uh, they were able to find ways of coexisting with the disease. And in fact, when I started this project in 2004, uh, just before what is now known as the Big Rust, people had said, well, basically you know, the history of the rust is over. The rust isn't really a thing anymore. Wow. Uh, we, okay. we know what it is. We know how to deal with it. And all people need to do is to do what they're supposed to do and the rust won't be a problem. Interesting. And wow. that okay. was the story in 2004 when I started this project. And um, uh, as, as we now know, uh, things changed. Yes, in a big way. Yeah. So the big rust... Is the big rust. Is where we are. Yes. It seemed that we had learned to coexist with the rust. It was just another disease. It was present in the ecosystem, but sort of like the flu is in people or the common cold, it was something we knew how to deal with. And then, first of all, in Colombia, starting in about 2007, and then somewhat later in Central and South America, let's call it 2012, 2013, the rust just started to blow up basically, once again, in ways that were completely unexpected. In many places, it caused significant damage. In Colombia, it caused a temporary drop of about a third. 
And at this point, Colombia is still, I think, the world's second or third third largest producer of coffee. So it's a major hit in the global coffee industry. Yeah, that's a um, ton of coffee. In Central, yes. in Central America, wow. I've seen figures that uh, uh, talk about a 15% drop in production, um, although I think that is kind of a regional average. And there were some areas that were much, much harder hit than that. And it was really disruptive. And one of the things that happened very early on is that in Colombia, uh, some of the experts in Colombia collected samples of the rust, sent it off to the various research centers that specialize in this and said, what's going on? Is this a new strain of the rust? And the answer came back, no, basically, this is exactly the same as the rust we've known all along. And so here, I just want to call back to my earlier discussion about an epidemic being not just the pathogen, but also the host and the environment. Well, the host hadn't changed really either. People were still, by and large, growing coffees that were genetically similar to coffees they've been growing for a long time. So Bourbon, Tipica, Katura, you know, all the usual suspects, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there hadn't really been any significant change in either the pathogen or in the host. So that leads us to kind of the third dimension of the disease triangle, the disease system, if you want to call it that, which is the environment. Mm-hmm. And here we had seen some changes. Um, there are some macro changes, and and I, I gather some of this stuff among scientists is still somewhat debated. But in Colombia, there had been changing weather patterns where uh, they had had some seasons that were unusually cloudy and unusually wet. And if you remember, the rust is triggered by water, by water, yeah. mm-hmm. right? By water and humidity. Yeah. In Central America, uh, the the epidemic, the cause, origins there are a little bit more complicated. But again, people tie it to changing rainfall patterns. Perhaps, uh, as I recall, a less distinct dry season and more more continually wet. And so there were kind of macro things uh, going on about. Uh, what we would now kind of conveniently bundle under climate change. And that's part of the environmental story. But the other one is tied into the coffee crisis. Uh, As you and your listeners probably know, from the early 60s until 1989, the global coffee economy was governed by the International Coffee Agreement, Mm -hmm. which uh, tried to manage global prices by controlling global supply, by setting export quotas. And... You know, nobody necessarily loved it, but it was better than many of the alternatives at the time, I think. Uh, In 1989, that came to an end and the global coffee market returned to almost an absolutely free market. Um, And essentially what happened from 1989 onwards is uh, a world that I'm sure most of your listeners are quite familiar to, moments of cyclic booms and busts and tremendous volatility in prices. And how that plays into the story of the rust is this, is um, imagine that you are a coffee farmer, uh, small, you have a small coffee farm in Guatemala. Uh, You don't earn a lot of money, but you've been able to keep the rust at bay by spraying your copper sprays a couple of times a year. Um, But the coffee prices plummet or perhaps the cost of your sprays go up. What are you going to do? Well, mm-hmm. you might say, okay, instead of spraying three times, I'm going to spray two times. Or maybe I won't spray at all. Yeah. Uh, another thing you're, you might do 
again, to save money to try to manage this volatility is say, you know, I, I know I should renew my coffee farm every 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. You mean like renovate? But, uh, is that the same kind like of renovate? Okay. Yeah, you know, you know, uproot all my old kind of coffee trees that are getting senescent at this point, and plant you know vigorous young, vigorous new coffee trees, perhaps even of the same species, but just younger and more vigorous, okay. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but maybe you decide to put that off for one, two, five, maybe ten years, uh, and so so. There are all these things that are going on, and sometimes some of the documents I've seen kind of blame the farmers. They say, you know, these guys just stopped farming properly, and they stopped doing the things necessary to keep the disease under control. And while at some level that's true, I, I think what we need to do is stand back and just look at the broader context, which is often... As, as we've seen, coffee prices have repeatedly fallen below what it costs farmers to produce them. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So this is not sort of, you know, how can I put it, a, a moral agricultural failing on the part of many coffee farmers, right? It's just what they had to do in order to keep going yeah, economically. This is like a managing risk exercise for me, yeah. at least, to, to think about, you know, how much weight is put on the producer in risk. And yeah. it, anyway, that's what that's what it makes me think about. Well, and, and the, ri- the risk thing really matters too, because one of the things about the world of the International Coffee Agreement that I described before is that many, if not most countries that were signatories to the agreement developed fairly robust national coffee institutes. Right. And these national coffee institutes provided technical support to farmers. Uh, Some of them provided loans to farmers. Uh, Some of them helped Mm -hmm. with marketing. Um, And once the International Coffee Agreement comes to the end, some of these institutes are just shut down altogether. Like in Mexico, I feel like like was... Yeah, the Mexican Coffee Institute, the Brazilian Coffee Institute. And farmers, you know, just at the moment when they're exposed to the free markets, many of them have all of their infrastructure support also cut out from underneath them. And I will say that the countries which have been most successful in dealing with the rust tend to be the ones that still have the very strongest national coffee farmer organizations. Right, like the and FNC the, with Colombia. The FNC in Colombia, definitely. Uh, Honduras. Um, I mean, as we've seen, I think one of the big surprises in the 21st century has been this kind of stunning growth of the Honduran coffee industry. Yeah, and a lot of it is just uh-huh. because a lot of it is just because it's super well organized, and then there are sort of more complex cases like Costa Rica, where Costa Rica's problem is almost the opposite: is that Costa Rica has so successfully diversified its economy that coffee doesn't have the economic or political weight that it did a generation ago. I mean, it's it's still important, um, but they also have you know tourism. Yeah. Technology, Amazon like call palm centers. Palm oil is a huge thing. Yeah, palm oil, uh, pineapple. Uh, I think I was seeing something the other day. They, they, I think Costa Rica might produce more pineapple than Brazil. It, I love I mean, me some pineapple, personally. <laughs> <laughs> it's, kind, it's kind of stunning, really. Um, yeah. So after 1989, like I said, all of, a lot of this infrastructure was, you know, either eliminated or, in many cases, very severely weakened. And this is one of the reasons that many farmers in many places haven't been able to cope. 
uh, as well as they did in the 1970s and 1980s. And it was this this lack of support that also led to this vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things that made Colombia so successful in its response to the big rust was, first of all, they have a coffee research center that has been doing coffee breeding research continually since the late 1920s. It's yeah. really kind of stunning. It really um, is. Yep. And, and so when the rust came, they they pretty much had the tools, you know, they had resistant varieties. So uh, Castillo is, is the big one. Um, They had, they had varieties basically ready to roll out. And then they had this tremendous national lobby of coffee growers that were able to convince the government to help support this large scale renovation of almost, you know, much, if not quite all of Colombia's coffee farms with these new rust-resistant varieties. And the interesting thing is, as you saw in the text, right, is that they structure the loan to reflect the reality of the coffee farmers on the ground. So we'll give you this money, but then you don't need to start paying it back until the third year, which is, you know, the year that coffee plants generally start to produce, you know, a financially financially viable harvest. Um, And so Colombia is an example of what is possible, but very few countries out elsewhere had the kind of level of in organization and government support that Colombia did. Right. And I, and I'm sure that's a, it's an extremely complex, um, uh, story of development. Uh, I'm thinking of Latin America specifically just because yeah. of the history there's it, for coffee at least and how coffee, uh, in society and power and all that kind of come together is pretty yeah. fascinating alone. So yes, um, one of the things though, um, and I think there's part of the question then is if all this stuff, all these supports weren't in place in the big rust, what happened? And certainly some of the some of the old organizations like the Cine Cafe, Prome Cafe, which is a regional Central American research organization. And some of the National Coffee Institutes still had a role to play. So I don't know overstate the demise of these coffee institutes. But then the mm-hmm. other thing that you see that's new are non-governmental organizations uh, starting to play a bigger role, uh, both in helping farmers at the grassroots level, but also in supporting research. And here I would say one of the biggest and perhaps most interesting players on the ground is this new organization called World Coffee Research. And I think you've talked to them previously on this podcast. Yeah, we've had them on the show quite a few times. Yeah, yeah. And they're they're doing really interesting work on on coffee breeding and breeding coffee, not just for rust resilience, but for qual- cup quality, for uh, resilience to climate change and a whole bunch of other things besides. And they're doing it on a global level. Um, and, and open source, from what and, I understand. And, as well. and open source. So so there's a lot of kind of really interesting and creative stuff going on here. Um, certainly at the level of research. I mean, I think the big challenge there is, I, I think they're they're playing a key role in research. The, the place where I, I still see a gap that is a, a real challenge is kind of what in internet terms would be called like the last mile. So world coffee research can generate all of these new varieties. But then the challenge becomes, how do you get those out to the farmers on a large scale. Like the extension uh, programs that like need to the, exist. Like the extension programs. I mean, and here, uh, Starbucks has been creative. They, uh, at moments, I don't think they're doing it right now, but they had this um, program called One Tree for Every Bag, which was for every bag of 
coffee sold at one of their stores in the U.S., they would donate, essentially, through an NGO, they would donate a tree to a farmer. Which so, is impressive, right? Because you, we've talked about how the consumer's not really aware of yes. the issue. So for them to make that move is actually significant. Well, and I, I think here's where I think the big rust might be a little bit different than what's going on before. And it has to do with shifts in the global coffee industry. So one of the big stories of the coffee industry, which we all know, is the, is the growth of specialty coffee, right? Uh, the, mm-hmm. Particularly since the 1980s and 1990s. Specialty coffee is, is a really big thing. There are only a limited number of places in the world that can grow the high-quality mild Arabicas, that have the landscapes that can produce this coffee. And so unlike, say, earlier epidemics, or unlike if we're talking about commodity coffee, where you can readily go uh, and source commodity-grade Arabica from pretty much anywhere in the world, I'm oversimplifying, but let's assume that that's true. Um, That is not true of the highest quality mild Arabicas, right? So if Central America goes under, and, you know, not that it it would necessarily, but that presents, I think, an existential crisis to the specialty coffee industry. Because think about what some of the major sources are. There's Central America, Colombia, maybe Peru a bit, Mm -hmm. um, Kenya, Tanzania, Ethiopia, Right. Small bits in India and and Sumatra, but there's not a lot of places that can pick up the slack. And so I think the rust and the problems that the Central American coffee industry and these particularly vulnerable regions that produce the mild Arabicas are facing does for the first time really present a threat to at least a sector of the industry. Interesting. And, and, you know, the demand that specialty coffee has on these susceptible varieties is sort of an interesting thing to chew on. Yeah. Well, one of the things that happened that we haven't talked about is sort of some of the scientific responses. And I'll, I'll, I can just talk about that for a second. So yeah. one of the things the Dutch did back in, after about 1900 was they started looking for varieties of coffee resistant to the rust. And one of them they found was from Central Africa, Uh, And in many respects, it was great. It did well in the warm, humid lowlands where the rust was worse. It produced high volumes of coffee with high quality of caffeine. It was a very robust plant, and it was known as Robusta, right? And uh, now, which is now kind of the evil character in the history of coffee these days. particularly as far as as quality is concerned, right? As far as quality is concerned. And... um, I don't want to, I could, we could do almost do a whole episode on, on Robusta. I know you've already had part of one on Robusta, which hey, we I can think always was, revisit. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'll, I'll leave that aside for now and say, in some ways, Robusta has been anathema to the specialty coffee industry. Mm-hmm. In, in the 1950s, the Portuguese discovered a coffee that would seem to be a, almost a platonic ideal in their, in their obscure colony or then obscure colony of Timor. Uh, now Timor-Leste, that was a spontaneous hybrid of Arabica and Robusta. So genetically, it behaved like an Arabica, but it had Robusta genes in it. Yeah, it's just a beautiful Uh, accident. Right. Very beautifully put. Yeah, exactly that. A beautiful accident. I wish I could go back and revise my book now. Um, (laughs) uh, So what they did was... uh, they collected it, it was sent uh, to a coffee rust research center just outside of Lisbon, and then distributed 
they, they did some studies on it, did some selection on it, and then sent it to research centers in Brazil, in Colombia, Costa Rica. And there they started back-crossing this Timor hybrid with local selections of, you know, Katura, Tipica, and things like that. And over the years have uh, developed selections of increasingly high quality. For a long time, the specialty coffee industry didn't even, I think, really want to hear about these coffees, just in part because I think they had genuine quality problems, but also there was this tremendous stigma of um, of the robusta gene. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. No, that but, makes but, sense. But recently, uh, in some blind cupping trials, some of these uh, Timor hybrids, uh, like Colombia's Castillo, have been some of them have scored ninety plus mm -hmm. uh, in sensory trials. So I think what's happening is the, I think in part out of necessity, the specialty coffee industry is starting to accept that these are going to be part of the landscape, uh, both literally and in terms of. Uh, the commodity, the commodity mm -hmm. chains. And I'm seeing in, in my local specialty coffee shop, I'm seeing now coffees that will have some Castillo in the, in the blend. Right. And there so, are things now, uh, you know, the Coffee Quality Institute is referring to as fine Robusta. Yeah. So uh, yeah. that's a whole nother element. Yeah. And, you know, from, from a development perspective, uh, if we care about the lives of farmers, not just if we care about farmers, but if we care about the lives of people who farm coffee, then we need to recognize that some of these people might have to switch to Robusta. And and I understand it's happening at lower altitudes in part of Central America. Uh, Guatemala uh, has started to produce um, Robusta on a fairly large scale. And I know I keep, I, this is sort of more at the level of gossip than anything else, but I, I constantly hear people talking about <laughs> Robust. In right. some places, it's officially, if not prohibited, then strongly discouraged. Uh, some right. some mm -hmm. countries are worried that it's going to sort of hurt their brand identity. Uh, but again, I think climate change um, is and and the rest are are forcing some farmers just to switch. Maybe this is an obvious question, but is is the big rest over? Or is it are we still considered to be in that era? There's a there's a big question. Um, the pe people who study natural disasters have been very useful to me in helping think about exactly this question. Um, often, I think, casually, when we think of a natural disaster, say like a hurricane, we think of it as an event, right? The hurricane sweeps through, and that's the disaster. Exactly. But if yeah. you think, for example, like Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, right? Mm -hmm. The hurricane happened a couple of years ago, but for the people who are still homeless, is the disaster over? I see. Yeah. Right. Man, and that, so, yeah, that's eye opening for sure. And so, uh, you know, is the rust under control for the moment? Yeah. Yeah. I would say it's probably under control for the moment. But for the people who decided to sell their farms, for the people who decided to migrate into the city or to migrate northward, for the people who lost their livelihoods, I would say the big rust is not over. Or for the people who are still on their farms struggling to make a go of it. Because mm -hmm. one of the things about, about the, the big rust that is also new is in part because of small changes in temperature, um, there are areas which before about 2000, the rust was present but not significant. In part because of changing temperatures, the rust has become much more severe. And so there are people I, I'm, I know still, still working to kind of get back to the place where the rust is just another disease. In your new book, Coffee is not forever. 
yeah. the title. It, that's sort of a morbid title, right? Like it, it's yep. kind of kind of dark. I I know you chose that on purpose. I know that wasn't uh, an accident. So what should we make of this title in the future of coffee in light of Rust right now? Yeah, I thought a lot about this title. And um, I think in part, one of the lessons of studying the larger history is exactly that, that the world, first of all, is full of places that used to be major, major coffee producers that are yeah. now no longer significant producers at all. So here in like particular- Like Haiti is one of those, right? Haiti, uh, but Ceylon, Java, and you know there, there are countries we historically associate with coffee who are struggling right now. El Salvador, um, even Mexico, right, um, are really struggling a lot. And I think the lessons of Ceylon and Java are just that. I think we need to be mindful that coffee is not forever. But then I, I also want to raise the question is, well, why not, right? And the why isn't coffee forever, or at least why is it not forever in any given place, is that we need to be really aware, and I think particularly those of us who are on the consuming side, need to be really aware that the coffee that we love and the coffee that we drink rests on really fragile ecological and economic foundations. Yeah. Right. And mm -hmm. and 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 it, they are going to become more vulnerable as time goes along. This is not status quo. Um, the, the, the broca, the coffee berry borer is moving around uh, right. in Africa. The coffee wilt is moving around. The coffee berry disease is moving around. Uh, climate change is coming. And at the same time, farmers are having to grapple with all of this stuff uh, uh, at a moment where many of them are facing really catastrophically low prices and yeah. very limited support. Um, so I fairly deliberately want to scare people about this um, or, or at least get them to think about that. And partly that reflects my own journey. You know, you go to a place like Colombia and you think, oh, this is the land of coffee, right? And if you start to think about it in the grand scheme of things, it's it th that's a short history. You know, the big coffee boom is the early 20th century. You know, it's been sustained by a fairly significant political economic effort. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. But we can't take any of that for granted. And so if we want it, and I think we all want coffee, I mean, there's good reasons for everybody along the commodity chain, there is good reasons for all of us to want the commodity chain to be as vibrant as possible, uh, particularly for, you know, and here I'm, I'm thinking almost more, I'm thinking primarily of the producers, right? The, it is in, it's in everybody's interest to have a robust and healthy rural economy in all of these countries. Yep. It is in everybody's interests to, to keep the coffee industry alive. And that takes effort. Uh, we can't just assume that nature will provide. It's almost, you know, the image in my head, back to the poetry side of me, is like the idea of renovating the way we think about it. Um, yeah. That sounds like your call to action, basically. It is. It is. Um, you know, it, the, the point here is it doesn't just happen. Any agricultural ecosystem alive or a commodity chain alive takes work. But coffee is so vulnerable I mean, I, I worried, I suppose, with the title because I didn't want it to be a complete downer um, mm -hmm. to the extent that, uh, you know, I've just talked about all the places that were 
you know, where coffee has disappeared. But again, I think Colombia is a wonderful example of what can be done if you organize your industry properly. You know, I think the, the work of world coffee research is is a creative response to this. I think there's there's a lot of smart things that people are doing out in the field. I think, you know, I think the folks, again, at World Coffee Research are, are trying to breed the right kinds of coffee. Earlier generations of coffee scientists were focused on productivity, 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 yeah. But didn't really have a larger picture of how coffee fit into the lives of the farmers and the lives of the consumers. Right. The uh, trends and, of the consumers and yeah. Yeah. yeah totally. And and I think world, you know, I think world coffee lee research, which is in fact recruited a lot of scientists and works with a lot of scientists from these more traditional institutions, has really learned from their experiences collectively. Yeah. Um I'm not trying to uh suggest that we should despair at all. Uh, just that we can't be complacent. One of my big questions, and uh, this has kind of been uh, maybe like a theme through the conversations I've had with with a multitude of experts about coffee. This this has come up, and I'm curious what you think. So, you know, it's been suggested that the leaf rust situation may be viewed as a natural correction to the oversupply of coffee globally and thus offering some kind of relief to the low coffee prices today um, by reducing supply. So what do you think about that line of thinking? I I don't like it a bit. Um, (laughs) I mean, I do do agree that, you know, the the big problem of the global coffee industry since about 1905 has been chronic oversupply. But there's always this this kind of weird moral ecological argument that somehow this is just, a natural correction of some sort. And and I suppose it probably did give a, a slight boost to coffee prices during the years when Colombia was busy, you know, uprooting and renovating its farms. But the outcome of that, of course, was that now with its modern renovated farms, Colombia is producing more coffee than it ever has before. So it certainly hasn't solved the supply problem. And And I think even at its worst, you know, the rust... When it tends to break out, it tends to break out in a particular region, uh, even as, you know, Colombia and Central America are devastated, Brazil and Vietnam and, and Indonesia and, and other origins are continuing to pump out large quantities of coffee. So I, I don't think the leaf rust is really a solution. And even if it were, I think it's probably the worst kind of solution we could imagine. Yeah. You know, yeah. let's it, it, it's it's kind of like saying, you know, let's let's hope we have a good plague epidemic to solve the problem of human over overpopulation. You yeah. know, I, I suppose it would work, uh, but uh, I, I think it would be a very catastrophic kind of solution. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing your your opinion on, on that. Um, definitely something for all of us to think about as we talk um, numbers without thinking about people. I think it's you know, it, it's really going to be vital to the conversation in that regard. But we've kind of come to the end of our conversation. And yep. I want to ask you uh, just a few more questions. The first one being, what what are some practical actions that our listeners can take against coffee leaf rust today? For the consumers, 
I suppose you can contribute to research by by donating to World Coffee Research. Uh, I know they also have a pro- program for roasters, a sign-off program. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're interested in getting relief uh, more directly to farmers, um, I know the NGO Catholic Relief Services uh, does a lot of work with coffee farmers uh, throughout Latin America and I believe elsewhere as well. So those are two places awesome. that come to the top of my mind. Nice. And we'll provide links to those in the episode description as yeah. well as in the on the website page. You've already recommended some resources for, uh, you know, sort of learning more or, or looking at organizations as, I guess, yeah. resources for that. But uh, you have your book. You want to tell us a little bit about that? And I'll just give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about it. And then I'll yeah. move on to the last question. The book, which is called Coffee is Not Forever, A Global History of the Coffee Leaf Rust, really tries to track uh, the origins and spread of the rust from the forests of Ethiopia, basically right up until about the end of 2017. Um, And I use the rust uh, as a way of thinking about uh, the relationships that we've been talking a lot about in this podcast, particularly the relationships between people, economy, and the environment. Um, The thing about a disease like this is it reveals connections between uh, different parts of the coffee world that have maybe not been so obvious uh, before then. And it also, at moments like this, at moments of extreme disruption, you start to learn a lot about uh, how people farm, how people think they ought to be farming, and a lot about um, values. So uh, even if you're if you're not necessarily interested in the rust itself, although frankly I think it's fairly fascinating, uh, if you are interested in issues of environment, economy, and coffee, then um, I encourage you to take a look. Final question here: What would you consider to be the best piece of advice that you've received over the years, and? And can you sort of unwrap that for us? The first one that came to mind, I've gotten lots of good advice over the years, um, is one I got from a a good friend of mine. Uh, I was debating about whether or not to go on a trip somewhere. And she looked at me and said, the only trips I regret are the trips I did not take, even when I had a bad time. (laughs) And... uh, and then she then proceeded to tell me about a train journey on in China. I think diarrhea was involved. Oh, um, gosh. But, yeah. uh, but that has really stuck with me. And um, as I think we all know, travel in the coffee lands can at moments be difficult. But in my experience, uh, it is always really worth it. Um, and, and I have to say I have followed my friend's advice and uh, never regretted it. Awesome. Well, Stuart, thanks for sharing uh, not just that piece of advice, but this time to talk about coffee leaf rust, um, to help us get an idea of how it fits into the the overall picture of coffee, the global history of coffee, but also how it might even fit into the conversation of coffee price and the crisis we face today. I think it's a critical element in understanding coffee Uh, in our time and day. So thank you for that. Thanks a lot, Jesse. 
So what do you think about the coffee leaf rust and the coffee price crisis? Are you coming up with your own action items to address the crisis? I'd love to hear your ideas on Instagram, Facebook, or hit us up at our email at hello at thecoffeepodcast.org. You can find a 30% discount with free non-international shipping for the paperback edition of Stuart's new book, Coffee's Not Forever, on our website at thecoffeepodcast.org or in our newsletter. Sign up for a newsletter through our website or through our Instagram bio. This discount's only available for a short time, so jump on it. I want to give a shout out to our coffee people listening out in Canada. Thanks for listening. Music is by Michael Parallax. I'm Jesse Hartman. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, and until next time, happy brewing.